So what I want to do uh, tonight, you know, is uh, continue the saga of Yaakov and Esav, but also now focus on the aspect of Yosef, which is a very strange story, as I will indicate and so on. And, uh, of course, uh, this has tremendous amount of repercussions, universal repercussions, very important and so on, you know. Uh, but uh, before I begin, I just want to say that this year should be a blessing and a merit for the health and success of the families of Regina Bas Yosef Ruvain and Yeshayor Ben Yisrael, Benjamin Wolf Ben Tzvi Hirsch, and Baruch Ben Benjamin Wolf. Yeah, this should uh, go for them in Ghanaian. In any case... There's something that's happening, which is very interesting, you know. You know, and what what it will ultimately result in, of course, we don't really know. But in any case, what it is is good news. What is that? Well, first of all, remember, the two main forces that are stopping the redemption in many ways is the concept of the era of Rav. They are the last, what's called Klippa. They are the last uh, evil people, you know, that try to destroy the connection of the Torah to the Jewish people. And we see, like I say, in Eretz Yisrael, which I mentioned, for the first time, there is no left radicals, or the Erev Rav, actually, that is part of the coalition. It's, it's amazing that all of them have been evicted in the vote from the coalition, which is the governing body of Israel. And now it consists basically of Netanyahu, who is heir of Rav, but it's what I call heir of Rav light. It's a light form. And as according to Kabbalah, the light form of the heir of Rav, which is called Klipas Noga, okay, will ultimately change into uh, the uh, <clears throat> into righteousness which is interesting and the rest of the coalition of course is the right you see and they are now doing things which should uh, vastly improve the spirituality the religiosity of Eretz Israel, which is very important and I think I've mentioned before, and that is that what seems to, what seems, what's going to happen is there's going to be an air of Rav that's going to be the major impediment of the Mashiach coming in Eretz Israel. Then something will happen where they will be, in a certain sense, evicted, all of them. And then there will be somebody who is religious, and he will be the intermediary or the transition between the end of the era of Rav, meaning the end of their ability to stop the redemption. He will be the transmission or the intermediary, right, between the era of Rav and Mashiach ben Yosef, which is interesting, yes, because there has to be a transition you know, between the people that try to destroy the Torah connection 
of the Jewish people, and the Mashiach ben Yosef. And therefore, in a certain sense, since the tikkun of the creation has been done, right, by the, uh, the Jewish people, right, the tikkun has been done, you know, through suffering, therefore the Mashiach will come not by miracles, but he will come, what's called teva, through natural means. So even though, of course, it's miraculous when the Mashiach comes, but his entry will be through natural means. Because we are not worthy for the Mashiach to come through miraculous means. Not initially, anyway. Later on, it will be miraculous. But initially, it won't. So basically, the feeling is, is that there will be an individual, a transitioned person between the, 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 the uh, termination, so to speak, of the era of Rav and their ability to halt the Messianic process, there will be a transition between them and Mashiach ben Yosef. So it's interesting to know who that would be. He'll be an individual who will be more modern, probably, so he can appeal to all Israel, right? And of course he will be religious. He will be a true God-fearing, observant Jew, you see. So that seems to be in the works. So that's the first tremendous change in the makeup of the government of Israel that seems now to want to bring Israel to a much greater spiritual height. The second very interesting thing is the Rosh of Esau, the evil of Esau, which is the basic idea of America right now. You know, we know who they are. You know, we're talking about Biden. We're talking about the Democratic Party. We're talking about the progressives, the radicals, the liberals, and so on. That are really destroying America. They have debased America, corrupted America, you know, with their, their values and so on. Especially with the LGBTQ, where they have legalized this entire... Uh, you know, system and so on. Just terrible to legalize that. And like I mentioned, in a certain sense, we have become the Torah model. This is the evil of Asa, which I've spoken about extensively. So the interesting thing about that now is that they too will now suffer a serious setback, the evil of Asa, because the house has now become Republican, conservative, which means they are, they are going to try to stop Trump, not Trump, excuse me, they're going to try to stop Biden from again trying to destroy the United States. So this clearly is going to create a stopgap in the evil of Esau, which is also very good. You see, so clearly the muzzle of those factions that want to stop the messianic process, they will be stopped. So that is really both in Israel and simultaneously in America, you see. So that is really tremendous news. Because for the first time the forces of evil are being halted in doing their evil. Of course the Sutton won't let up.
He's trying to destroy, you know, anybody, right, that will wants to remove the left, the Democratic Party and Biden and so on. He's desperate because he's dying, as I mentioned quite a while ago, right? Because all the sparks of holiness are basically back in the side of holiness as opposed to being with the, the Sutton. And therefore he is desperate, right, to stop the people that would halt his evil influence. So really, this is really very good when you really think about this. Well, look, let's hope that we are witnessing the beginning of the process to overcome both the air of Rav and the beginning of the process to stop the evil of Esau. Let's hope so. Any case. Now, the story of Yosef, really, very strange story. You know, a lot of very difficult questions to, uh, to ask and so on. I mentioned, you know, just a couple of how in the world did this story ever come about? I mean, it's an incredible drama. Now, who would have imagined, you know, <clears throat> that Yosef would be kidnapped by his brothers. But what's interesting, it's not that they wanted to kidnap him. They wanted to kill him. Because we know it says that when they finally did get their hands on him, because he went to check out the welfare, Yaakov sent him to check out the welfare of his brothers. Of course, Yosef didn't literally, he didn't know that he was stepping, stepping into an incredibly dangerous situation. Uh, but it says that his brothers, <clears throat> right, so they didn't want to kill him outright, so they took him and threw him into a pit. And the Torah calls that pit a bull rake, an empty pit, that has no water. Now, the Chazal tell us, well, obviously if it's an empty pit, obviously it has no water. So they learn <clears throat> that the bull rake, it was empty, right, but it had no water, but the implication is, but it had something else, Right? which could kill him. And who is that? That is snakes and scorpions. Right? So therefore, they were hoping that he would die at the hands of the snakes and the uh, scorpions. So they could say, well, we didn't kill him. Right? It was he died through natural means, even though they're the ones who threw him into the pit. So how do we understand that? Why would the brothers want to kill another brother, you see. So that's a very difficult question to answer. I mean, were they that jealous of him because they had those dreams that showed his ascendancy over the brothers? So what do you do? You go kill the guy? I mean, it's incredible when you think about that. <clears throat> and not only that, if you kill him, right, then you will have diminished the tribes, right? You have diminished the amount of tribes, because there were, there were basically 12 tribes. If you kill him, there's no more 12. It's 11. So automatically, they knew that the prophecy is that there will be 12 right tribes. So were they not aware that they would be reducing the tribes? You see? <clears throat> and also, were they not aware of the incredible grief that they would be creating for their father? I mean, we're not talking here about regular people. 
these people, the Shvatim, right? These are incredibly righteous people. Tzadikim. Of the highest caliber. Uh, right? I mean, their father was Yaakov, and the, uh, their, their mothers, of course, were the four wives of Yaakov. So we're not talking about, you know, uh, average people. Like I say, we're talking about tremendous sadikim. So how does all this make sense? You see, it's a very difficult question to answer. You see, we, in fact, we wonder at this. Why would they do this? And then the, another question, for instance, I, that we could ask is, okay, I mean, obviously the concept of dreams is very much associated with Yosef. The dreams that he had about him and his brothers and his father, right, bowing down to him and so on. Then, of course, the dream, right, of the uh, butler and the baker, right, that got him out of prison, his interpretation. And then the dream of Pharaoh. Obviously, dreams play a, a very strong role, right, in his escape. <clears throat> but what is interesting is this. <clears throat> if you do a service for Pharaoh, right, you don't become the Grand Vizier. You know, he'll pay you for your consult, consultant's fee, right, and, and that's it. Why would Joseph all of a sudden become the Grand Vizier? I mean, even if he's talented, fine. So you can hire him as a consultant, right? You don't hire, you don't appoint him to be the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. Now, Egypt was a very strong, probably one of the greatest nations at that time on the planet. So you make this guy because he interpreted a dream, you don't make him a grand vizier, see? So how do we understand that? And so on, you know? And why was Yosef in prison and so on? I mean, the whole story is very difficult in many ways to, to understand. There are so many different questions. <clears throat> well, let's see if we can try to get a handle <clears throat> on the story of Yosef. Well, we know already, because I mentioned it, the basic thrust of the whole story. We know Yaakov took over the job of Esau. We know that Yaakov and Esau, both of them were patriarchs of us, right? Each one had a job. The job of Yaakov was to bring down Kiddusha, holiness, right? And that's why he's called the Yoshiva Holom. And the job of Esau, to subdue evil by remaining righteous, by going out into the world. And that's why he was called an Ishsodeh. We know that, to go out and remain righteous and therefore subdue evil, you see, and take back a tremendous koyach or power of the satan, what's called take back sparks of holiness, you see. <clears throat> and we know that Asa failed, right, at a very young age. At 13 already he began to fail. And therefore, Asa failed as a of, as a patriarch. We know also that the job of Esau has to be done. It's part of the avoidor, right, of Tikkun. So it's not like, okay, he failed, too bad, Yaakov will continue on his own. No. Somebody has to take over the job of Esau because it's part of the Tikkun process, which I pointed out. 
Now we also know that Yaakov took over that job, right? That he went sort of like, he had two jobs now. His own job, right, of bringing down holiness, and the second job of doing Esau's job, right, to subdue evil by going into the evil place and remaining righteous, no matter what the temptations are. We know this, you see, and that's what he did. And I pointed out that no man can do two jobs like that because it requires certain different types of characteristics. The characteristic of Yaakov initially is incredible amount of emes, titain emes to Yaakov, to give truth to Yaakov, right? And the job of Esau, right, is to be about taiva, is to be inclined to be tempted to do evil. And he would have to withstand the temptations, thereby destroying the Satan. You know that also, you see. And this was the job, of course, of Esau. So one man cannot do two jobs. Therefore, it would be necessary, and this is what the Bansham did, he gave the job of Esau, right, to somebody else in addition to Yaakov. So Yaakov had a certain amount, and that's why he was in the house of Lovan, right, to remain righteous with all the evil going on in the house of Lovan, right? So that's number one. But the additional job of Esau, which Yaakov did not do, pointed out last time, and that is that Esau, the job of Yaakov, he gave over to Yosef. So what God did is he elevated Yosef, right, to be a chatziov, to be a patriarch, half. And like I say, that's why Yosef could have two tribes, Menashe and Ephraim. See, for that's really what sets the story in order to understand what is going on. Ah, so we now know something very important, that if Yosef takes over the job of Esau, he too must go into the field, right, and remain righteous. He too must be incredibly tempted by evil to a tremendous extent, you see, and withstand that, and then he also will have his share of destroying evil, which means to remove all the sparks of holiness from the sudden. That's the basic framework to understand the story of Yosef. So, question, like I said, why did they hate him so much? Why did the brothers hate him? Why would they want to kill him? You know, can jealousy move somebody to such an extent? And the, what the answer seems to be is something very interesting. If you recall, right, Yaakov, Esau came home. He was 15 years old. Came home after committing terrible sins, which the Midrash goes through, Chazal goes through, you see. <clears throat> and Yaakov realized that Esau is sinning. The problem is, like I said, is that Esau has the power of, of an of. He has this incredibly lofty soul. So if he does mitzvahs, there's a tremendous amount of kedusha that comes down. But if he sins, then Esau himself will contribute to the growth and power of the Sutton. And the contribution to the Sutton by an of, a patriarch, is so great 
After a while, he can wind up destroying the whole planet. So Yaakov knew he has to remove the ability of Esau to do that. And that's why, if you recall what I said, he had to sell, buy, I should say, he had to buy the firstborn, right, of Esau. He had to buy it, and that would remove the ability of Esau to, to be able to do the kilko, which is destroy the creation. This is what Yaakov did. Well, guess what? Yosef was very similar in character to Esau. What does that mean? So the, the, the Chazal, the Apostolic says, Yosef, that Yaakov loved Yosef. And it's a Vuhunar. And Yosef was a youth. And Rashi says, what does that mean? He used to write the comas here. You know, he used to do things that clearly seemed to reflect that he was a budding Esau. That's the problem. So when the brothers looked at him, they said, wait a minute. <clears throat> he seems to be very much involved in what? You know, in uh, Gashmias. You know, he combed his hair. And, not a, and, and we don't know the other things that he did, but clearly they were indicative of his being attracted to Olim Hazer, to this world, right? And we know, and they also knew, that Yosef had a special job, that he was greater than them, you see, because he was the one who was supposed to fulfill the job of Esau. So why in the world is he doing it? Not only that, but he seems to be following in the footsteps of Esau. And not only that, he used to go over to Yaakov and tell Yaakov the sins, or what he imagined to be the sins, of the Shvatim, of the tribes. Right. He spoke Russian horror against them, you see. And they said what he's trying to do, obviously, is poison, right, the mind of Yaakov against them. So not only does he seem to be a budding Esau, right, involved very heavily in Oilem Hazer, right? So he's a potential Esau. But wait a minute, a potential Esau means that, and his neshama is Chatsi of, is half a patriarch. That, could you imagine the kilkul, the damage that he could do? Just like, imagine the damage that Esau could do. And Yaakov went out of his way to buy that to prevent Esau from destroying the creation. So the brothers said to themselves, right, <clears throat> we need to stop this guy. Because this guy is going to sin, because he's already driven. He already has a tremendous, what's called tendency or proclivity, right, of sinning, or rather of enjoying Oilem Hazer, this world. He's very much tempted, you see. So we need to stop him, just like Yaakov stopped Esau. We need to stop him, you see. And therefore they decided that his ability to destroy creation is so great that they have to kill him, you see. <clears throat> now the problem was that was that their true motive in order to rescue the creation from a person that they thought would become a Russia like Esau? The problem was that wasn't their real motive. They hated him because they were jealous. But they excused it, right? Uh, that really want, they want to kill him to prevent him from destroying the creation, which I've spoken about, you see.
So the real motive was jealousy. And they did not want to look at that, you see. Now, they could have been jealous, first of all, because of his status, number one, as a half a patriarch. Also, that his father, Yaakov, loved Esau more than the others. He gave them this special coat. You know, a sibling rivalry. Plain, simple. So that was the real motive, you see. And that's why in the end they sinned, which had to be uh, compensated a thousand years later, or two thousand years later, whatever, by Hadrian and the Ten Martyrs. But I'm not going into that now. In any case, they wanted to kill him. So we now understand that they convinced themselves, right, that somebody with his stature, his ability to do Tikkun, can do what Esau did and bring a tremendous destruction on the creation. So at least we have some type of a handle, you see, on why they decided, they judged him, that they have to kill him to prevent this tremendous damage to creation. Now, <clears throat> Yaakov, the father, you see, when, when Yosef had these dreams, he knew what they meant. The dreams that Yaakov understood reflect the superiority of Yosef over the other tribes. So that's why it says, V'oviv Shomar Esadova, uh, you see, and his father, right, watched the matter of the dreams, if they would become true. Because he knew if Yosef took over the other half of Esau's job, that Yosef himself would have to go into what's called the klipa. He himself would have to go out into the field of evil and remain righteous, you see. Uh, and therefore, this is what Yaakov realized, you see. That's why it says, and his father, Shamar, watched for this, you see. Because he was hoping that, Yaakov, uh, that Yosef would go out and destroy the Satan, you see. And that is why, which is interesting, it says, uh, and he was a Zokin, you know, Ben Zekudim Holo, that Yosef was the son in his old age. You see, <clears throat> what does that mean? So Rashi says, what that means is that he taught him what he learned with Shem Ve'eva, right? Remember the 14 years when he learned Shem Ve'eva when he was on his way to Lovin's house? And I mentioned why. Because he himself had to learn because when you want to bring righteousness, that's one limud learning. But when you want to subdue the satan, right, you better make sure you're armed with terror, which will help you subdue the satan. So since he knew that Yosef was in the field, you see, he knew that. So therefore, he did to Yosef what he did to himself. He taught Yosef everything that he learned in the yeshiva of Shem Ve'eva, to give them the armaments, right? To be able to subdue the satan. You see, that's why he was the only one, doesn't say that he taught the other brothers, right? His other children, what he learned. It says only by Yosef, that's why the Torah calls him a benzikunim, that he taught uh, Yosef, right? What he learned in Shem Ve'eva. He was older. Uh, you see, so we understand that why it was called, Yosef was called the Ben Zikunim, you see, 
because he knew that was his job, which is very, very interesting, you see. So what happens in the end? So in the end, what they do is they capture Yosef, throw him into the pit, hoping he will die, right? And of course, he doesn't die. Obviously, he's divinely protected from snakes and scorpions. Could you imagine what kind of pit that was, right? And he goes to the house. He's kidnapped. He's sold. And he goes to the house of Fatifa, right? Of Fatifa. Now, Fatifa was one of the nobles, apparently, of Egypt. Uh, you see. <clears throat> but because Yosef had a special job, which is interesting, it says, and everything that Yosef did, right, <clears throat> God made him successful. So he became tremendously successful in the house of Fatifar. And Fatifar therefore made him the chief of his entire house. You see, so God clearly was protecting him so he can survive. Because if you think about it, I mean, here's a guy, he's only 17 years old. He's kidnapped, really, and that's only because they wanted to kill him. So he has no family. He's in Egypt, which has tremendous amount of tumor, defilement, right? Not only that, he's a slave. That's the lowest social position in Egypt. Imagine the abandonment and the loneliness and the isolation that Yosef must have felt. <clears throat> so clearly he was very vulnerable to give up. Have Yish resign himself to his fate, that it's over. Young guy, he's finished. You see? <clears throat> so that's what he became. But remember, he took over the job of who? Of Esav. That means he would have to be tested, basically, in the same way that Esau was tested, right? Did that happen? Yes. And here is a story that really is amazing and how the Torah alludes to it, <clears throat> right? What was the main test that the Torah brings down? The story of Fortifa's wife. Now, Yosef was a very good-looking person, very good-looking. And after a while, there's a lot of midrashim about this. Fatifa's wife became enamored of Yosef, and she wanted to be intimate with Yosef, even though she was married to Fatifa, right? So therefore, what is this really all about? Why is this story mentioned? Besides the fact that this story is the reason why Fatifa was very angry, because his wife told him she made up a story that Yosef tried to uh, rape, rape her or whatever, force himself on her, so he put him in prison, whatever. But what is that story real about, really about? Why does it have such a prominent place? And it's interesting how the Torah alludes to the real story of Fatifa's wife. Here's what happened. It says in the Pesach, right before the test, right? Will he be with Fatifa's wife or not? Uh, so it says there, Right? And he went to the house to do his job. Now, of course, the plain meaning, of course, to do his job, to manage the household of Fatifa. Right? But really, when you look at it, what it's really saying is this. And he went to the house to do his job. What job? Not the job of managing Fatifa's house, 
But last is Malachtoi, his job of what? Of being tested with the same intensity as Esau. Let's see what he does, right? <clears throat> so all of a sudden he goes into the house. She sees her husband's not there. And she wants to try to seduce him, right? This is the story. And he withstands the temptation. How difficult was that temptation? Well, the Torah alludes to it incredibly. Here's what it says, right? ish, <clears throat> And there was no man, right? ish, and there was no man, of the household, shum, there in the house. So the Pesach says, and there was no man of the household in the house. Now what it should have said, and there was no man in the house, means they were alone. Why does it say, and there was no man of the household, of the men of the house, there in the house? Well, think about that. The implication is, and the Torah gives this extra phrase, and there was no man of the household there in the house. The implication is, and there was no man of the household, Ainish, right? And there was no man of the household in the house at that time. What's the implication? But there was another man. It's true. There was no man of the household there at that time. But there was another man, but not of the household. Who is that man? See, that's what we learn from the extra phrase of the Torah. And you know who that extra man was? That was the Satan. Because if you recall, when Yaakov fought the angel, how does it start the story? It says, And a man fought with him, right? And he fought with him and he subdued the Satan. And Rashi says, who was that man? And he says, that man was the Malach of Esau, the Satan himself. You see, so what the Torah is saying, that this was no ordinary temptation. The drive, the desire to be with Fatifa, right, <clears throat> was superhuman. That means the one who tempted Yosef to be with Fatifa's wife is the Satan himself, not one of his subordinates. The Satan himself was giving him an unbelievable drive, you see, desire to be with Fatifa's wife. And that would now equal the drive that Esau had in subduing the Sultan, which of course he didn't. So the Torah actually alludes to the fact that the story of Fatifa's wife is the supreme test of Yosef, because he is now going to be subjected to a temptation that is equal to the Sultan. It is satanic. That means the intensity to live with Fatifa's wife is beyond comprehension because he has to replicate what Esau also went through, you see. So we now have, okay, let's see what Yosef does. See, that's what it means. And there was no man in the house? No. There was no man of the household there in the house. But there was another man that man that fought with Yaakov, right, when he was going to meet Esau. 
This was the supreme test that Yosef now had to replicate Esau's job. You see? And it must have been incredibly difficult. And the only reason why you should know, Yosef was able to be victorious and not be with Fatifa's wife is because all of a sudden the image of Yaakov Avinu appeared to him, right? And he showed him, right, that he will not be, if he succumbs to this temptation, then he will not be on the Merkava. You see, what's the Merkava? I mentioned the Merkava, the divine chariot, is one of the prophetic images of Yecheskel Hanavi. All right, and he saw a divine chariot, right, with the face or the face of a man. That is the image of what's called God, Adam Kadmon, without getting into it. But that chariot has four wheels. You see, besides angels, right? It has what's called, you know, uh, the face of Yaakov. It has a lion, which represents Sheikh bin David. It has a, uh, uh, an ox, which represents Mashiach ben Yosef, and has an eagle. <clears throat> you see, those are the four wheels of the chariot. These are the four forces of Kedusha that will bring God's presence into the world. And that's a symbol of a chariot, a vehicle that brings God's presence back into the world. So Yaakov Avinu showed him, if you succumb to Fatifa's wife, then you will have failed the job of Esau which means you have not done the Tikkun. So then you will not be on the Merkava. You will have failed, you see. So that image of Yaakov realizing, right, what this test really was, enabled him to subdue the Sultan, right, and not be together with Fatifa's wife. So in essence, Fatifa's wife is the real story, you see, it is the culmination of Yosef's job to do the tikkun itself as the job of Esau would require, you see. <clears throat> and it's amazing how the Torah alludes to that, right, by saying there was no man of the house, right? Hold, there was no man of the household, but there was another man, you see. And the Torah alludes to that by saying, and Yosef came in to do his job, what job? Like I said, not the job of managing Fatifa's household, but the job of Esau. That is the illusion of what the story of Fatifa's wife was really all about. Uh, let's put it this way. It was the crux, the critical idea or time of what Yosef had to do. You see, in any case, so Yosef had accomplished an unbelievable thing. He had subdued the Sutton, you see, <clears throat> and uh, as a result of that, he was now worthy of being on the Merkava, the divine chariot, and of course, that the Mashiach ben Yosef would come from him, you see. <clears throat> In any case, he had succeeded. Now then, of course, Fotifa put him in prison because he believed his wife although it seems to be that he really doubted his wife. But in any case, and he went to prison, and we next encountered, and of course God gave him tremendous success, and we now encounter the story of the baker 
and the uh, and the wine wine uh, minister and so on and of course they were a dream and this gave uh, Yosef the opportunity to be part of uh, appearing before Pharaoh you see <clears throat> and he told them please mention my name to Parai because I am, have been unjustly placed in this situation you see you know people wonder why was ya- why was Yosef punished by having to remain there another two years Rashi brings it down you know he should have trusted in God that God would get him out of prison so why couldn't he take advantage of the fact that he interpreted the dream and hopefully that would be able, they would speak in his name because he interpreted the dream correctly they would speak in his name to try to get him out of prison and the answer probably is because Yosef realized that it says in everything that he did God made successful it says that when he went to prison so automatically he realized that God was on his side doesn't it well if God is on his side right so that means that of course God is looking after him so he doesn't have to rely on Teva you know he could trust God because he sees his whole life is nothing more you know in in Egypt that God is protecting him like it says and everything he did God made him successful a person knows when he has tremendous divine assistance success you see in any case he was punished for two additional years to remain in prison you see but what is important you see is he now appeared with an opportunity because Pharaoh now had a dream he had the opportunity to appear before Pharaoh now why did this happen was this an accident coincidence that Pharaoh had a dream you know the dream of the uh, the uh, sickly cows and the sickly wheat stalks whatever and so on consuming the healthy cows and the healthy wheat stalks whatever is this a coincidence no what Yosef did you have to remember that Yosef was what a half of a patriarch who had successfully done the job of Esau but what was the job of Esau to subdue the Sultan to remove the sparks of holiness right and tremendously weaken the Sultan's power well if Yosef had done that that means the power of the Sultan is incredibly weak and we know that the, what the Sutton always tries to do is appoint a nation, right, that will represent him in trying to do evil and getting mankind to do evil. But Yosef, right, by doing the job and remaining righteous, whether it be by Fatifa's wife or in Fatifa's house or even in prison, right, what he did is tremendously starved the Sutton from the sparks of holiness. Well, if the Sutton starves, then what? Then his firstborn nation that does the evil or the, he's the agents of the, the agents of the Sutton, they also starve. So it comes out that the dream that Pari had is a result of the job that Yosef did. So it's amazing. Yosef starved the Sutton because in acting the way a representative or a, to replicate Esau's job, 
he took away the sparks of holiness, which meant that, like I said, the Satan is starving. He's dying, actually. So automatically, those agents that do the job, right, of the Satan, are also starving. That is the origin of the dream of Parai, who represents Egypt, and that is the origin of the famine, you see. So therefore, Yosef, by doing his job as the agent representation of Esau, starved Egypt, really starving the Sultan. So automatically that caused Paroi, who was obviously the leader of Egypt, to dream about what Yosef did. That is why that's what got Yosef out of prison. His dream that he created got him out of prison, you see. And therefore, Pare called him to interpret the dream. Because once you starve the Satan, then Kedusha, holiness, becomes ascendant over the Satan, over evil. And the rule is that what happens in heaven must reflect itself on earth. You see, uh, since Kedusha, holiness, was now, you know, ascendant over Toma, evil, or the Satan, because the Satan is starving. Therefore, Yosef now has risen in holiness much greater than the Satan, because he now has all the sparks, most of it anyway. And therefore, he now is equal to Paroi, because the firstborn of the Satan, the main agent of the Satan, is Egypt. Right? And therefore, he now has to be, his job now has to be, or I should say his stature, has to be right underneath Parai. So when he interprets the job of Parai, right, why does Parai make him, as I asked, why does Parai make him a Grand Vizier? Okay, pay him as a consultant. You don't make the guy a Grand Vizier. And the answer is Parai had no choice. Because since Parai represents the status of the Sultan in heaven, the Sultan's status is now one of starvation. So automatically, Paroi now becomes uh, a subsidiary or inferior to the status of Yosef. So therefore, he has to automatically make Yosef second to him. That's how high Yosef became in Kedusha, in holiness, especially since he so successfully did the job of Esav, you see. And therefore, Paroi has that dream. It's fascinating to watch that when you subdue the Sutton, right, you can become superior because you take back the sparks of holiness and therefore automatically you are elevated, you see. And this is what happens, that Yosef had to be elevated because he did the job of Esau. When you think about that, it's amazing. And you know where we find a similar idea? By Haman and Purim, you see. Because what was Purim? You know, all of a sudden, right, uh, Haman, of course, convinces Achashverosh to kill Yosef, excuse me, uh, Mordechai and all the Jews, and so on. And so what happens? And then all of a sudden, there's, a, there's the uh, Achashverosh can't sleep. Haman comes in, and he tells him, you know, by the way, you know, uh, what would you give to a guy that you want to honor? And Achishverosh says, well, take Mordechai, put him on the king's horse, 
right? Give him clothing and royal clothing and so on, right? Why did Achashverosh do that? Because when the Jews fasted, they did tshuva, because they realized that Haman was going to kill them. So they did tshuva, which was a tremendous tshuva, which I'll talk about on Purim. And therefore, they took back the sparks of holiness from the side of the Sultan, which is being represented by Haman. They took it back to the side of Kedusha. But if that's the case, then Haman must become inferior to Mordechai. Because in heaven, right, the side of holiness is now greater than the side of evil, because the sparks have been removed from the side of evil, as represented by Haman, and is now in the side of Mordechai and Esther and the Jewish people. So automatically that means that Mordechai is now elevated over Haman. And that's why what came to the king's mind, and he had no choice, is to reward Mordechai for saving his life. And the way he would reward him is not by merely by elevating him and putting, on the, put him, putting him on the king's horse with his garments and so on, right? But he would have Haman leading him, which clearly is an incredible inferiority status because Mordechai was now superior. The Jewish people were now superior, right, in Kedusha than Haman was in the evil. Same concept, you see. It's an incredible reversal. When people do tshuva, things reverse. So that's what happened with the story of Haman and Mordechai, but it's the same story of Yosef and Pare. Like I said, that since Yosef did the job of Esav, automatically it means that he is now superior. His side of holiness is superior than the side of evil. And therefore, Pare had to recognize that Right, unconsciously, by allowing Yosef to be the superior, right in the whole arrangement, and therefore he makes him grand vizier, and it would take the Jews, the rest of the Jewish people, the twelve tribes, and the Jewish people in Egypt, to take back all the sparks of holiness, you see, from the side of evil, and that's how they would leave Egypt, you see. In any case, uh, I'm going to stop here and continue and finish the story of Yaakov and Esav the next time. Any questions? Yes. Go ahead. So, um, my question is, is, is there a coincidence that, with, let's say, like with Pharaoh, that he had the dreams at night, and then also with Ahasuerus that he couldn't sleep at night, is the night have to do with, like, the coming of like coming out of the darkness like what is why both in both cases where when we finally beat the satan is they it all uh, uh, you know started from the night well the most obvious reason in terms of the regular meaning is people usually dream when they sleep and people usually sleep at night so that's when they will have the dreams you see but the other idea is that the nighttime is the reign of the Satan. You see, he reigns at night. That's his time of, of uh, you know, of uh, um, lordship, if you want to use that word. You see, so by having the dream at night and showing the weakness 
of the Satan at night, at the time that he, right, rules, is indicative that he now is falling. Because it's even during the time that he has the power, you see. That's why, for instance, in Teves, which is the month of Esav, when something good happens to the Jews in Teves, right, then that is a tremendous sign, right, that Esav, in the month of what he is powerful, is faltering in his very month. You see? So since the nighttime is the domain of the reign of the Sultan, represents his time, and all of a sudden, right, he, uh, he um, achieves an inferior state, which is indicative of the dream to these people. Well, that tells you, you see, that's very good. Because not just the Sultan is falling, he's falling in the very time that he has power. You see. Right. So my next question is, all of the that? Tests, my next question is, all of the tests that Yosef had to go through in order yeah. to come out, does the Mashiach and Yosef have to go through those similar tests in order to come out of it as well, of his <clears throat> people? I'll tell you, that's a very good question, <clears throat> but there's a difference. <clears throat> Yosef took over the job of Esau to do the tikkun that Esau was supposed to do. His descendant, who is the Mashiach ben Yosef, by the way, has very similar sufferings. But the problem is, is that the sufferings of the Mashiach ben Yosef is not is to uh, atone as a kapora for the sins of the Jewish people. And I once brought the Medrash where the Mashiach ben Yosef accepts upon himself tremendous amount of suffering, you see. And uh, so he does experience terrible suffering, and he does experience the suffering in the Kripa, right? <clears throat> he actually suffers in the Kripa. In the Kripa means the Tumor. That's where his suffering is. And the suffering of Mashiach ben Yosef is a tremendous denial, you see, of Kedusha. That is the nature. I mean, could you imagine how Yosef would feel being in Egypt? I mean, Yosef inherently is an incredible tzaddik. It's really what he is. You know, forget about what the brothers saw, but he himself is an incredible tzaddik, you see. So could you imagine taking a tzaddik of the caliber of, of, of uh, Yosef, you know, and automatically what that would mean Tremendous suffering for a tzaddik to be in the environment, you see, of evil and defilement and tumor. So Mashiach ben Yosef is in that, and his suffering atones for the sins of the Jews. And that was brought down by a medrash which I quoted, you see. And that's what's very interesting. So the suffering is very similar. I mean, Yosef's tremendous suffering in prison because he was a place, Egypt was known as a place of tremendous uh, zimo, defilement and incest, all kinds of stuff. That was Egypt was famous for, you see. And therefore he had to withstand not succumbing, especially in his situation of Yush. There's a guy who's finished. The young guy is in prison. He's already in prison, right, at 17. So how's he going to get out of this? 
you know. He's been abandoned by his family, right? And they wanted to kill him. Could you imagine the level of resignation of Hush that he had? You see? But that was part of his job, to do a Tikkun instead of Esav. Whereas the Mashiach ben Yosef also suffers in the Klippa. Tremendous tumor. You see? And we see that by all the forerunners of the Mashiach, that they suffered greatly uh, in terms of the tumor and so on. You see? You have Lot and his daughters and so on. You know? You have Yehuda and Tamar. That somehow it always involves what's called an environment of Klippa, an environment of tumor, an environment of sin. You see? And God has his reasons for that. You see? But in any case... Uh, so there is a great similarity between the suffering of Yosef and the suffering of the Mashiach himself. It's just that they have two different purposes. One is the purpose of Tikkun, and the other, Mashiach ben Yosef, is the purpose of forgiveness, atonement of the Jewish people. But the suffering is very similar, that they are denied a level of holiness that is appropriate for their souls. You see, they denied that, and there's a tremendous amount of suffering. So there's a similarity, and there's a difference. Okay, now my question is, is that in, um, when Yosef was tested with the wife of Potiphar, was she the female version of the Satan? Because now they say that, that the female version is much more uh, stronger than the male version of the... I mean, I don't want to say her name, but... So, it was she that drive that um, Yosef had to pass? Because usually they say that she's much more harder to overcome than the male version of the Satan, correct? Well, let's put it this way. Although, it's interesting what Khazal say about Fatifa's wife, that she had some type of vision that she would marry Yosef. She actually had that. That was part of her desires, besides the fact that Yosef was tremendously handsome, you know, so there was a real taiva, her drive and so on, you know. But she had, did have some type of an inkling. It's hard to know what it was. It's not a prophecy, but it's certainly some type of a, uh, a uh, premonition that she would be with Yosef or or they would have uh, progeny together, which happened because Yosef married Osnas. And Osnas was a daughter, not literally, she was a stepdaughter or an adopted child of Fatifa's wife. So she was right in that way, but it wasn't her. It was her adopted daughter, you see. But she represents the test of the sultan. And the, and, the, and the temptation that Yosef had, like I said, it, at that instant was satanic. It was beyond belief. It's a miracle that Yosef survived that test. Like I say, if it wasn't for Yaakov appearing to him, he would not have survived. And Yosef didn't completely pass the test. That's for another shear. You know, he failed at a certain level, you see. But in any case, but basic tests, he did succeed. He never was with Fatifa's wife. You see. Is there? I don't any, know. I, I don't, what? Do you think there's any um, 
co- not coincidence, because we know there's no coincidence, but now in our days, that temptation is <clears throat> rampant, in, you know, especially with the Internet, and, and so the Satan is using almost the same <clears throat> tactics in our times as he used with Yosef to try to succumb him. Well, the, the, the main test today is interesting. You know, since the Mashiach brings the greatest amount of emunah, belief in God, right? Because that's really what the Messianic is. That is the time that you have complete understanding and belief in God's existence. Therefore, what precedes the Messianic era must be an absence of that, you see. So we now live in a generation, right, that has a tremendous amount of absence and denial of the belief in God, because that's what we will experience in the Messianic era. And the Internet is part of the, part of the reason for that. You know, the Internet has all the information, you know, so when you, when you look at the Internet, I mean, it has many, many terrible, uh, you know, temptations and so on. But one of them is the amount of information. So when you're subject to such incredible amount of information, you begin to say to yourself, well, maybe there is no God. Look at the world. Look how rich the world is in terms of the phenomena that goes on. You see? So the Internet does cause a, a, cause a great amount of what you call uh, of abandonment of religion. In fact, the latest statistic, which I heard, it used to be that most of America was religious. And I heard now that at least one-third of America are either atheists or agnostics, where they either don't believe outright in God or they don't know, so they have nothing to do with religion. Religion in many ways, uh, certainly in America and Europe, in many ways is on the way out. Most of the churches, 90% of the churches in Europe are empty. The only one who goes to church in Europe is the tourists because they want to see all the beautiful windows and all that stuff, you know. People are abandoning, especially in Christianity, they are abandoning, abandoning uh, religion. And that's really what the major test is in the end of time. It's called emuna, you see, uh, a belief in God. The world is now going through a period of time where they are being severely tested. Do you believe that there's a supreme being and that the world runs not by chance, you know, but because it is being directed by a supreme being? And, and, and that's really what the test is. Now, of course, once you believe, that's why what you're looking at, this LGBTQ, all of this is basically a defiance of God. It's really what it is. <clears throat> you see, America, mankind, is defies God. That's what it's all about, you see? And the defiance of God, obviously, is because you don't believe in God. So there's no question that once you defy God or you don't believe in God, guess what? What rears its ugly head? And the answer is, Zimo, Ilim Hazer, right? The good life, as they say, right? Uh, the materialistic life the life of tremendous amount of incest, right? Adultery, right? Uh, and all that kind of stuff, you know? Uh, promiscuity, all of this. 
is what happens when you don't believe in God because, hey, I want to do what I want. Nobody's bothering me. I don't believe in anything else, you see. So mankind clearly is now finds itself in a tremendous uh, concentration of self-aggrandizement uh, and self-gratification. That's what mankind is doing today, and it's, the reason for that is a direct result of non-belief in God, you see. So I would say that's the major test of today. You see. Basically to fight the left, because that's what they believe, that there is no That's left. what the left believes, right. That's what the left is. The left is nothing more than a movement to destroy the belief in God. That's what it's all about. See, and therefore they defy God by doing whatever they do. And it doesn't even make sense. It's completely insane and ludicrous. But that's what this world is now about. You see. Any other so questions? If we, if we stay steadfast in our Muna Bitachon. If we what? If we stay steadfast in our Emuna and Bitachon, we technically can guarantee ourselves uh, the merit to be when the Mashiach comes. Correct. Yeah, it's interesting that we live in a paradox. You know, if a person believes in God, even at a minimal level, you know, then he will get oil habo. He will get. Because that's how difficult it is to believe in God today. There are so many distractions, so many alternative lifestyles, alternative belief system, you see, that if a person believes in God right, then his reward in the future world is beyond belief. So in that sense, can you imagine what a person can earn if basically all he has to do is believe, you see, <clears throat> you know. I mean, in, in the Gomorrah Marcus it says, Habakkuk, boil down all the mitzvahs to one. I mean, he still to do the mitzvahs, but he said the main mitzvah today, he called it Sadik. A righteous person will live by his emuna. It means it will be so dark, right? So that the absence of God will be so pronounced that a tzaddik has to rely on his beliefs that he was raised with because he doesn't see anything anymore. It's almost like God has disappeared from the world because that's the main test, you see. So if a person believes in God and he does the mitzvahs, you know, even if it's not a lot of mitzvahs, whatever, then his reward is incredible. Just from that, because of the unbelievable darkness that surrounds mankind. So that's true. Today you can earn an ilam haba that in a certain way was unimaginable to the earlier generations. Because for them it was much easier to believe in God. And there were so many other tzaddikim, kadoshim, holy people that lived then. You see, today, you know, you got to search far and wide to really see a holy person. So therefore, the reward is tremendous. You see. <clears throat> 